Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13. You can also find it uh, printed. The text we'll be looking at is printed in page 8 of your bulletin. And then if you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, you can find that on pages 818 uh, and on to page 819. So we'll be looking at Matthew 13 this morning. Uh, and we'll come to that text in a moment, but it's there on page 8 or 818. We're beginning a summer series entitled Picturing the Kingdom. And throughout this series, we'll be looking at some of the parables that Jesus tells about the nature of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And these parables give us pictures of what the kingdom looks like and what it looks like to live as a part of that kingdom even now. And even as I'm saying those words, I realize that they're probably ones that need a little defining or clarification as we begin. Because I don't know about you, but for years, that phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, as I look at it in my Bible, it would raise these questions. What exactly does that mean? It's a majorly loaded theological phrase But as we begin this series, I just want to give what I think is a very simple and helpful and accurate definition. As as we think of this term, as we hear these phrases used, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, this term that can be so fuzzy, uh, it created tension for Jesus' original hearers. But what Jesus' ministry and the rest of Scripture really makes clear is that the kingdom is a way of speaking of God's perfect rule in the world to come. As you read through the New Testament and the Gospels in particular, you could replace the words kingdom of God with the words new creation or the words new heaven and new earth. That's really, in shorthand, what's taking place. Now, as I say that, you probably should be saying, now, wait a minute. <laughs> that sounds pretty strange, right? The, the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, part of the message of the kingdom is that it is here, but the new heavens and the new earth, they are surely not here yet. And that tension that we feel gets to the very heart of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. What Jesus is announcing in his ministry is that He, as the Messiah, has come. This is it. What all of Scripture has been pointing to and prophesying would come, it is here. Jesus brought it. He is the King. He's brought its covenant through the cross. And you can be part of this reality. But the way that Jesus brought the kingdom is what causes tension. It's completely unexpected from what people were looking for as they were reading and searching the scriptures. The kingdom, Jesus says, is both here and it is also not yet fully here. And that's what stopped all of Jesus' hearers in their tracks. And his disciples wrestled with this understanding. They had to rework their understanding of how God's plan for history would unfold. So when we speak of the kingdom of God, when we speak of the kingdom of heaven, we are speaking of that amazing reality of new creation, life with God. It has come. It is present. It is here now. 
But it's here in what we would say is an inaugurated or beginning form. And we are still waiting for this full, consummate experience of the kingdom, which will come at a later time. And so hopefully that orients you a little bit into what we mean as we're talking about picturing the kingdom. And I think that helps us understand why we would call this picturing the kingdom. Because by nature, if the kingdom of God really is shorthand for new creation, life with God, can you think of a bigger, more multifaceted topic than that? <laughs> that is the whole goal of the universe's existence. It is so multifaceted, so vast, so all-encompassing. And so as we look at how the scriptures teach us about this future reality that is broken in upon us even now, part of the way that happens is through propositional statements that we find all throughout the scriptures. This is who God is. This is how God works. This is how you become a part of his kingdom. And on and on we could go. And we just considered those as we walked through the book of Colossians. But what I love about the scriptures is as the word of God, they come to us completely understanding how we work and exist as people. And part of the way that we were designed is not only to function by way of propositional truths and statements, but we are people who are shaped by pictures. We are people who are shaped by stories. And Jesus often taught in parables some are simply similes or metaphors. The kingdom of God is like this, and it's, it's just one little thing. Others of these parables are stories with characters and a plot that compare these things to different aspects of the kingdom. And what these parables are doing is they're taking a topic or an aspect of God's relationship with us in kingdom life, and they're giving us a comparison of something that is familiar to us that maps onto this thing that is very unfamiliar to us. And so that our understanding of something so vast, so complicated, can be shaped by these pictures and these stories that help us lay hold of the profound truths of what life with God is really like. And I think one of the things that's really helpful to understand at the outset is no one parable gives us the entire picture of the kingdom of God. They work as layer upon layer, as examining a diamond and seeing the different facets of it as the light hits it in various ways. These pictures layer upon each other so that they reshape us into people who see and understand the nature of God's dwelling with humanity and what that looks like. And so um, these different aspects of it are all needed for us to comprehend something that's so vast and all-encompassing as God dwelling with people. And so that's what we mean by picturing the kingdom. These snapshots that layer together to help us more fully understand what God's kingdom and dwelling with him, both in its inaugurated form and its consummate form are really like. But you may be wondering, okay, why do we need that? That um, It sounds cool. There might be stories involved, but it also sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> uh, theologically, we're already tired and we're like three minutes in, right? Um, that's how, <laughs> anyhow. Okay. If you feel that way, uh, 
maybe this is helpful to you. Why do we need these pictures or these parables? Well, the, the reason we need them is we, by nature, come to an understanding of the kingdom of God and the things of God and what life with God would look like. We come with our own expectations, don't we? You can talk to small children who maybe have been or haven't been a part of church, and they will have ideas of what God is like, of what heaven would be like, or life beyond this life would be like. We, we all have these underlying presuppositions of these things. And this was true back in Jesus' day. And there were many different expectations, right? The Pharisees had one expectation. The Zealots had another. The Gentiles had another from the ways they were shaped by their worldviews. So it was true in Jesus' day that we come with these expectations. It's true in our day as well. What kind of life with God was Jesus really proclaiming? That is something we all need to know. Because if we don't understand the nature of God's kingdom, it leads to all kinds of problems for us. As followers of Jesus, I think oftentimes we can find ourselves discouraged because we think that things should be different in the kingdom of God. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the church? What's wrong with me if things are going this way? And often those are addressed by these pictures of the kingdom that Jesus brings. And if we have misconceptions about the kingdom and about what God really cares about, it harms our witness in the world as individuals and as the church as we become focused on the wrong things and things that aren't part and parcel or the heartbeat of life with God. And so it's the beauty of these parables. They give us these divinely inspired pictures of God's kingdom. And and those pictures, by their very nature, they invite us to consider how it really is. And that reshapes our expectations of what life with God should be like. So as we hear these parables over the next 10 weeks, it's, it's really our prayer that the Spirit of God would use these pictures to confront us with where our expectations about the Christian life are wrong or are incomplete and lacking. And that God would also amaze us with the wonder of how his kingdom is already presently growing and will fully come one day all to the result that we would be changed into people who see life according to these realities and live more and more as citizens of this kingdom even now. So that's kind of an extended intro, but it kind of lays out what we're talking about and and where we hope to go. But with all of that, I find myself saying, well, let's dive into one of these, right? And so let's do that. Marcia agrees. Like, <laughs> anyhow. Uh, so let's look at Matthew 13 and hear one of these beautiful pictures of the kingdom of God. We will look at Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, and then we skip to verses 36 to 43, where Jesus resumes with an explanation of what he has told. So hear God's word in Matthew 13, beginning... In verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. 
And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, let's pray and ask our God's help as we consider the wonders of his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would send your spirit to help us this morning. We confess that understanding your kingdom, your plan for us to one day dwell with you in fullness is profound, complex, and all-encompassing. It stretches us in many ways. And so we pray that you would confront us this morning with your truth. We pray that you would amaze us with the beauty of your gospel And then we pray that by your spirit, you would change us into people who love and look more and more like our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we consider this parable, we will do so in in three points, really. The first point is the story of the kingdom, where we'll just look at the parable itself. So if you like a three-point message, this can be point one. If you prefer a two-point message... The other two points are applications. But point one is the story of the kingdom. Point two is the mixed nature of the present kingdom. And then we'll look at the pure nature of the future kingdom. And I'll remind you of those things as we go, but those can at least help you as we walk through this parable. So let's begin by considering the story of the kingdom that Jesus lays out here in this passage. The story itself is actually, it's, it's relatively straightforward. I think the biggest difficulty for us is that most of us are quite far removed from wheat farming. I don't think we have any wheat farmers present among us here. Um, And so we come to it already having to gain some agricultural understanding. But it's a story of agricultural sabotage. Under the cover of night, a man sows seeds in another's field. If you've ever dealt with weeds in your own lawn, you know that they grow plenty fine by themselves, let alone having weeds mixed in with the seed uh, that has already been sown. And so you can imagine how devastating this would have been when farming is your livelihood and what you depend upon. Now, these weeds, which are also translated tares in some versions of the Bible, are almost certainly what are known as Darnell ryegrass. 
It's a type of plant. And the tricky thing about this weed that's so significant to the story is that it's related to and looks just like wheat, especially when it's small. And so as it matures, some differences can be noted. It's not wheat. It ends up being a little bit smaller. It ripens to a different color. It doesn't droop like wheat droops. It's, it kind of sticks up in the air. So once it's matured, you can tell the difference. But it's also very problematic because it is poisonous to livestock and to people. If uh, the mold that grows on it or what accompanies those seeds gets mixed in even uh, just a little bit, gets mixed in with the wheat, it makes one sick to their stomach and can be even fatal if consumed in enough amounts. And so one little bit of it, when ground up with the rest of the wheat flour, can ruin the whole batch, can ruin the whole harvest. And so planting these weeds in someone else's field would be a horrible thing. Uh, and part of the reason for this is the delay. They wouldn't know that this has happened because true to the story, by the time that the servants realized that this has happened, the weeds would have actually become quite large. And that means that the roots of the weeds would have become entangled with the roots of the good crop as well. And so it would be nearly impossible to deal with this many weeds without bringing harm to the wheat. And so the focus of this story is the master's response to this problem, to this conundrum, to this um, evil act that has been done. And in verse 30, he says, let both grow together until the harvest. Rather than sending the servants to intervene and somehow bring harm to the wheat, the weeds remain in the field until the harvest time. Well, fortunately for us, Jesus then goes on, as he does with some of his parables, to explain it privately to his disciples. And we, we see the significance of this understanding this parable for our lives as Christians. Jesus brings an explanation in verses 36 to 43. And part of the reason this is so important is that throughout the parables, Jesus will use many of the same settings and stories. Agriculture was what everyone knew and everyone was acquainted with. And so there are many parables about seeds and about fields, but we have to pay close attention to make sure we're understanding this according to how Jesus explains it because their roles can change in the different stories. In this parable, there are two planters involved. Verse 37 says that the man who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And this is Jesus' common title for himself. But then another agent has done planting. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed this, these weeds is the devil or Satan, the one opposed to God and to his works. Now the seed in this parable represents people who belong to those sowers. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. They are people of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom people are the good seed. The weeds are identified. We learn more about them in verse 41 because there the angels remove all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. This helps us better understand the nature of the weeds that we find in the field. Their actions which are referred to there as causes of, 
a sin, which we would we see translated elsewhere as stumbling blocks, things that they do that are provoking others to stumble and to sin, and then also lawbreakers, the things that they do are against God's good and holy law. And these two types of people, according to this parable, coexist in the field. They grow together until the harvest. That's the whole point of what's taking place. And the harvest, Jesus says, is the end of the age. When the Son of Man, when Jesus himself instructs the reapers, who are angels, to separate the weeds from the crop. Now, we're not sure about the specifics of how all of this works out, but in Scripture, angels play a role in helping with the logistics of the final separation and judgment that occurs at the end of time. But one of the most crucial details for understanding this parable is this. It's the nature of the field. Verse 38 tells us clearly, the field is the world. Now, throughout church history, there have been some who have used this parable to speak of the church. And you see good reason for this, right? When we speak of the kingdom of God, when we speak of the kingdom of heaven, that can also often be referring to the church as it exists in this world, um, representing God's people. The church is a subset of the world, uh, even in this story. But the meaning of this passage is very clear. The field is the world, the world where the kingdom is now present. And the kingdom is like a field that contains both wheat and weeds until the harvest. That's the picture that Jesus gives that's essential for all of his followers to understand. So that's the story, and those are the characters. But what are we to make of this parable? Jesus concludes, he who has ears, let him hear. What are we to hear in this story that Jesus gives that helps us better understand the nature of the kingdom of God? Well, that leads us to our second point, the mixed nature of the present kingdom. The mixed nature of the present kingdom. The context of of when this parable comes helps us understand some of its significance, and and in particular, some of its relevance to the original hearers. What has been happening in Matthew as we come to Matthew 13? Well, Jesus has been doing a lot. He's come on the scene announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, and he has been teaching, and he's been doing miracles and driving out demons. But how are things going, especially if you're one of his followers? things actually aren't going well at all. Nothing seems to be changing. And things don't seem to be getting any better. In fact, opposition is increasing. And Jesus is more and more being rejected as he goes from place to place. And so before this teaching, John the Baptist's disciples have come to ask if Jesus is really the one or if they should be looking for another. This doesn't seem like the kingdom, is what they're saying. And this is what John himself is feeling. Herod has God's prophet in prison. And Rome doesn't seem to be going anywhere. In fact, they're fine with continuing their wickedness all along. And in this context of the Messiah's arrival and rejection, it raises a significant issue. If this is the kingdom 
If Jesus is really right about that, if he really is the Messiah, then why is there so much evil? People are rejecting the Messiah. They're turning away. His followers are saying, we didn't think it would be like this, Jesus. Do you ever feel this way? (laughs) You look out in the world and you say, I know what the Bible says about what God is doing. But boy, when the news pops into my phone or I turn it on my TV, I say, what in the world is going on? Or maybe it's not in the world. Maybe it's a subset of the world. Maybe it's in the church. Is this really what Jesus' kingdom is all about? These scandals, this mistreatment, these people who fall away, leading others astray, the the harm that's done in Jesus' name? Or what about as we look at our own lives? Yeah, I'm I'm part of the kingdom. I'm trusting in Jesus. But wow, (laughs) wow. I didn't think it would be like this. I didn't think I would still feel this way. I didn't think I would still struggle with these things. This is the context that everyone is acutely feeling who's close to Jesus at the time. And it's in this context that Jesus brings this parable and actually other pictures about the kingdom. In response to this, Jesus went beside the sea, we see in chapter 13, and he spoke in parables to the crowd. He had to give them pictures to correct these misunderstandings and expectations of what life with God would be like. And so he tells parables about the kingdom of heaven. He tells the parable of the sower. He tells our parable of the weeds, the mustard seed and the leaven, and others, some of which we will look at later in the series. Why? Because these parables bring that needed correction to these misperceptions about the kingdom and the Messiah who brings it. The kingdom, Jesus says, is now here, and evil still exists. This mixed nature of weeds and wheat is the present nature of the kingdom of God. Weeds will grow right alongside the wheat in this world until the end, when the Lord Jesus oversees the harvest. This mixed nature of Jesus' kingdom isn't only taught here. Here we get a beautiful story of the nature of it, but this is a truth that we find elsewhere in Scripture. In Psalm 110, which is the most cited psalm in the New Testament, you'll remember it when we say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, right? It's quoted all throughout the New Testament, but it goes on to say, the Lord will rule in the midst of his enemies. The rule of Jesus will be one in the midst of weeds. And Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 15. This is is what we heard in our scripture reading, which can sound so strange to us so often. When I read 1 Corinthians 15, it, it catches me off guard every time. But it says in verse 25, For he, the Lord Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And before that, in verse 24, it tells us why. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, verse 28, that God may be all in all. You see, the Lord Jesus' present rule, the present expression of his kingdom is one that is mixed with enemies until the end. 
It doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't here or that Jesus isn't ruling. It's the present nature of what we experience. Imagine how shocking this must have been to the disciples. (laughs) They thought Messiah comes and everything's fixed, right? And you would think it would be easier for us to understand this now 2,000 years later as we've seen church history unfold. And yet I find in my own heart and as, I, as we talk together that even though we know this, it often continues to surprise us, doesn't it? It catches us off guard and it's hard for us to comprehend. One thing that happens in Jesus' explanation that I think captures some of our experience is he tells this parable and then he goes on to tell about the mustard seed and about the leaven, right? And the parable of the mustard seed says it's this teeny little seed and then what happens? It becomes this eight-foot tree where birds can, it can hold full-size birds. This teeny little seed becomes this big. Leaven, yeast, you, you can barely even see it and what happens? Measure upon measure of bread becomes leavened through its work. And his whole point is the kingdom of God, it begins so small and so insignificant and works in invisible ways like leaven. And like, look how significant it becomes. And I hear those parables after the parable of the weeds. And what I think is, well, yeah, so that seed's been growing for 2,000 years we've got to be getting pretty close to that tree, right? I mean, bread is really going to be rising. I mean, shouldn't things be a lot better if that's how much has unfolded since then? But isn't it interesting that after telling those parables, Jesus goes out of his way, circling back with his disciples in the home to make sure that they understand that the growing and expanding nature of his kingdom doesn't invalidate this parable of the wheat and the weeds, this mixed nature of the kingdom until the end. Yes, significant growth will happen. Yes, lives change. Yes, gospel going forward, permeating society in ways. And yet, the fullness of what the kingdom is bringing will only be seen at the harvest time. And until then, it will look like a field (laughs) that is mixed with weeds and wheat. And so what difference then does this make for us? Well, I think as we consider this this mixed nature of the present kingdom, there's two applications. One is it gives us realistic expectations. It gives us realistic expectations. Often when we talk about views of the end times, which kingdom of God talk gets lumped into what's your view of the end times, we use phrases like optimist and pessimist, profoundly theological phrases. Um, Optimist means overall things will be okay. And you know what? I think things can actually get pretty good and then they might get pretty bad and then comes the end in some way. Pessimist, um, things are bad and they're going to get worse and then they'll get really bad and there's very little to be excited about. I don't think the Bible calls us to either optimism or pessimism with whatever theological view you end up holding. Instead, it calls us to what it holds forth as a realistic portrayal that holds in tension both the progress of the gospel and the change that it brings as well as the accompanying evil that will always be present alongside it. And this is helpful as we think about the world. 
great progress can be made in our world, in our country, in our communities, especially as believers live according to the truths of the gospel. Lives can be changed. The gospel goes forth and people come to know Jesus. And yet lawlessness and stumbling blocks will abound until the end. And this is helpful as we think about the church. The good and evil that we see as we live here entangled with the world will be a part of these things until the end of the age. And it helps us as we think about our lives that we will battle these weed-like tendencies in our heart until the end when they're finally removed. And what Jesus wants us to know in this parable is that he is not in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, wringing his hands from his throne saying, oh no, how did all of these weeds get here? I thought on the cross I fixed everything. No, he completely understands and knows and knew even then the devil's schemes and he is ruling and reigning now with a perfect plan that will one day disentangle all of it. That's what he wants us to know. And so as we have more realistic expectations, we, like Jesus and like the Apostle Paul, we can get excited about and we can rejoice at the evidence of God's kingdom change that is at work among us, in our lives, in the church, in the world. But what this parable also does is it tells us that in this present nature of the kingdom, all of those laments that we find in the Old Testament, they are all valid things in the expression of God's people in this present phase of the kingdom. That we will be believers on this pilgrimage who will look out and we will say, how long, O Lord? Why does it look like the evil are doing great and the righteous are languishing? Because in a sense, that's true. But it's also true that none of that is happening outside the sovereign rule and reign of the Lord of the harvest. And so we, like the faithful before us, we will look around and we will lament the evil that seems to run rampant. But we will bring these laments and these complaints to our Lord Jesus in faith, saying, you are the Lord of the harvest And we pray that you would trust us to help us to trust you until that harvest comes. And so it gives us realistic expectations in this present phase of the kingdom. It also gives us realistic responsibilities. Don't raise your hand, but is anyone here uncomfortable thinking I'm telling you you can get off the hook with evil? It can kind of sound like that, right? Of, oh, evil's going to come alongside everything. It sounds like what Craig is saying, that Jesus is saying, is that life now is just a license for passivity, right? We can't do anything about the weeds, so just let them grow. Well, this parable, it's important. Remember how no one parable explains everything about the kingdom? This parable is not addressing the question, what do we do about the evil? That's addressed elsewhere. Elsewhere, and even in the Gospel of Matthew, we find that we are to fight against evil in our own lives, to cut it off, to pluck it out, the sin that's in our hearts. 
We seek to correct evil in the church, right? Matthew 18 gives us a process for dealing with that. It's not just hands off, live and let live. We seek to correct the sin that others may be enslaved to. And we seek to alleviate and push back against evil in the world as we live as salt and light in this world, right? So the rest of Scripture calls us to fight against evil, but it gives us realism in our responsibility in it. We fight evil, but it is not our job and we will never eradicate it. And so often I think we think if we could just fight it well enough in our heart, in our church, in the world, then we could usher in the harvest now. And I think that's exactly why Jesus gives us this parable. And so as we continue to see evil existing alongside the wheat, it doesn't mean that we have failed, and it doesn't mean that Jesus has failed or his kingdom is not here. And so hopefully you've seen in in this point, part of the purpose of this parable is to give us proper expectation of what the kingdom looks like in this age, right? But this parable also calls us to look ahead to what the kingdom will one day become. And this is where it turns into some really good news as well as a warning. And that's, this is our third point, the pure nature of the future kingdom. The pure nature of the future kingdom. The resolution to the tension of this parable of wheat and weeds growing alongside what's going to happen, that tension is resolved at the harvest. And that harvest calls us to consider what happens to the weeds and what happens to the wheat. And the first thing that we see is that this parable is a warning to the weeds. It's a warning to weeds. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. At the end, there are only two categories of people. There are people who are of his kingdom, who have received Jesus as king, and there's, there are those who have not. And there are only two outcomes at the end of the age, one into judgment and one into blessedness. And again, this parable alone might make it sound like you have no say in the matter, right? But the point is not to say, well, I guess I'm just a weed, so there's nothing I can do about it right? Instead, part of the reason that Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear, is because in this age, the message of judgment is also always a message of invitation. Jesus told of the sower before this, and and the whole point of that parable is, don't be like the rocky soil. Don't let the thorns come and choke out Jesus' call. Receive the seed of his kingdom. Faith in him will rescue you from the final judgment. You see, this parable does not tell us all that we need to know about how God works with weeds. It gives us part of the perspective. Ultimately, there are wheat and weeds. But scripture also says that we experience this through a saving process. We all begin as those who are part of Satan's kingdom because of the sin of our father, Adam. But God, even while we were his enemies 
and part of the devil's kingdom and work reached out to us with the news of love and of rescue and of forgiveness through his son, the Lord Jesus. And every person in this room who is a person of the kingdom, who is part of the good seed, was at once a child of the evil one and an enemy of God. Not righteous in themselves, but instead trusting in the righteousness of Jesus now for their salvation. And so whether you are currently outside the kingdom or whether you have loved ones who are, as many of us in this room experience that, it's important to remember that when Jesus saw the crowds of wheat and weeds, what was his response earlier in Matthew 9? He was filled with compassion and he called for his workers to send more for his disciples to send more workers into the harvest and Jesus is reflecting God's heart towards weeds as well. The father's heart towards weeds is like a shepherd who leaves 99 of his sheep to go after the one who has strayed and the one who is lost. God's heart is like a woman who has 10 silver coins, but she loses one and she tears her whole house apart to find the one that she has lost. The father's heart towards weeds is like the father who shamelessly runs after his son to lavish forgiveness and grace upon the one who once wished that he was dead. You see, this message of warning is often also a message of invitation. And it calls us to embrace the forgiving, loving heart and work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this passage gives us warning and invitation to those who are outside of the kingdom. But it's primarily, really, a message of encouragement to the wheat who find themselves in the midst of weeds. And I want to close with three encouragements for us. The first is the comfort of coming purification. The comfort of coming purification. The final judgment is sobering, isn't it? We read those words and it stops us in our tracks. But the final judgment is also comforting. Because what Jesus highlights here is one day the sabotage of Satan will be no more. There will be no more stumbling blocks. There will be no more lawlessness. No more of that painful entanglement of growing alongside what is contrary to God's ways. Only the blessedness of life in the Father's kingdom, the way it was meant to be. You know, part of God's answer throughout Scripture to this question of evil is that one day perfect judgment will come. We will one day enjoy a pure kingdom where evil and all of its effects are removed forever. It doesn't answer all of our questions of why. Why are the weeds here now? But it brings us comfort and hope nonetheless. And so there's comfort of coming purification. There's assurance of supernatural preservation. Assurance of supernatural, your supernatural preservation. 
There's a surprising detail about the harvest and the order of it in verse 30. And we might just skim right over it. But Jesus says, at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Why is that weird? Think about it. If you have a field of wheat and weeds and it's harvest time, what makes sense to do and what do we find throughout the recorded history of how they would do something like this? You go get that wheat, right? Because you don't care about the weeds and so you can trample the weeds while you get and save the wheat. But that's not what Jesus says and I think it would have stopped his hearers in the tracks. Wait a minute, go get the weeds first and then you can harvest the wheat. What is it implying? It's implying a supernatural preservation of the wheat throughout the entire separation process that will not harm their roots, that will not harm the crop. Somehow, the Lord Jesus, through the agency of his angels, brings about this separation that also implies this preservation of the wheat so that none of them are harmed in the harvest. He will ensure, is part of what he's saying here, the Lord Jesus himself will ensure that every single grain of wheat will be preserved all the way to the Father's barn. And he wants us to see that it's miraculous. We may not fully understand God's purposes in having wheat and weeds mixed this way, but Jesus indicates that It is in some way for the benefit of the wheat. Wait till the harvest so that they're not uprooted, so that the wheat isn't harmed. But what we are assured of in this passage is that as difficult as it may be, Jesus' kingdom people will be preserved to the end. I think when we hear this story, it sounds like a process that sounds difficult and complicated. I think when we live life as Christians in a world full of weeds, we say this is really difficult, but it lifts our eyes to say he will preserve us to the end. And that brings us to the third and, and final point as we close. Confidence, this parable brings confidence in your glorious transformation. Your glorious transformation. The end result of the wheat is no small matter in this parable. Notice how he describes them in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Scripture repeatedly holds out the state of final perfection as a time when God's glory illumines the universe. Isaiah 60 tells of this. Revelation 21 and 22, there's no more sun, no more more moon in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? God's glory is there and it is shining upon his people. But do you see what this says? (laughs) What's amazing about this is that the wheat are transformed so that they shine like the sun as well. Just as Daniel had foretold, those who are raised to everlasting life in Daniel 12, 3, they will shine like the brightness of the sky above and like the stars forever and ever. And it's no coincidence here that Matthew's wording of what Jesus says here almost identically matches the wording of Jesus and his transfiguration just a few chapters later when it says that the Lord Jesus' face shone like the sun 
and his clothes became white as light. What Matthew is making clear for us is this, that the wheat are fully transformed into the glory of the Lord Jesus. That as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Not only will God's glory be what illumines the entire universe, but we will become the people who we were made to be. And we will be filled with and perfectly reflect the glory of God as his perfect people forever and ever. Won't that be amazing? (laughs) Don't we long for that harvest? This present parable, it, it reshapes our expectations, doesn't it? The form, its form in the, this world is mixed with wheat and weeds. But one day we will experience the pure perfection of knowing what it is to truly dwell in the presence of God and God will be all and all forever. Let's pray and ask his help to that end. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that it cuts us to the quick. We pray that you would encourage us with the wonder of what will be and that that will help us to see how you're shaping us into that image even now. Help us to be faithful in the midst of weeds and wheat until that glorious day when we will see our Savior and enjoy the fullness of the kingdom he has brought solely by your love and grace. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.